This episode is brought to you by Bluesound, makers of the Node-X network streamer. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Welcome back to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. And joining me once again for a third time is Peter Como, who is the Director of Acoustic Design at IAG. Now, many of you will know IAG as the sort of parent company of brands like Wharfdale, Mission, uh, Quad. Who else is there, Peter? Help me out here. Uh, Castle, Audio Lab, Luxman. Right. Okay. So quite a few. Yeah. Now, you've worked for IAG since, what, 2009, 2010, something like that? Uh, yes, it's uh, coming up to nearly 14 years now, yeah. Right, okay. And in recent years, you've designed the, the Wharfdale Linton, the Wharfdale Dovedale, Mission 700 and 770. Uh, that, that, yeah. No? Is that right? Yes, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wharfdale Elysian series. I okay. mean, uh, you know, I have a have a hand in all the all the speakers that IAG produce. Right. So you're an audiophile, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory manner, but of no. many years, right? You, you're, you've been around the block. Yes. Uh, I I suppose I, I started as a teenager. Uh, just just I, in those days, you had to have a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Um, and I badgered my parents to get a really good stereo reel-to-reel tape recorder. Um, with a, rib, a stereo ribbon microphone by Bangalolson. And it, I just wanted to capture all these sounds I heard around me. Mm. So, you know, I'd go outside and uh, capture birdsong and then go down the church and uh, capture the sound of the organ and the, the choir. And I just wanted to, to capture sound and then replay it um, for the entertainment of others. Yeah. Uh, and fairly quickly, I realized that the speakers that we had were not up to what up to the quality of of what I was hearing when I made the recording, put it like mm. that. So that sort of led me into, well, how do I make better speakers? And uh, to I, I mean, I worked in the in the hi-fi retail trade in London mm. in various shops and then ended up managing a hi-fi shop in Plymouth and then through that, met uh, a guy, Stuart Mee, who who wanted to buy some speakers at a reasonable price, and we couldn't find anything that were better than his Celestian Ditton 15. So somehow we ended up designing a pair of speakers, and it took us 18 months. I mean, everything mm-hmm. I thought I knew about designing speakers had to go out the window and had to start from, from basics, really. Uh, and that was the start of Haybrook. So Haybrook, I ran for 15 years, um, producing classics like the, the Haybrook HP1, which won what Hi-Fi Awards Best Loudspeaker for three years running. Um, then I did a spot of consultancy, which meant that I ended up working for Mission um, in the, the start of the millennium, mm-hmm. designed the 780, which also won what Hi-Fi's Best Loudspeaker Award three years running. Huh. Uh, <laughs> um designed Pilastro for Mission, which was a very high-end loudspeaker, mm. uh, and then eventually joined IAG on the, you know, the, they, they bought Mission. Uh, I didn't uh, in, initially 
go with them. But a few years later, uh, they asked me to join as director of acoustic design for for IAG. Ah, I see. That joins all the dots. Now, yeah. the reason that we're uh, we're going through your CV a little bit is to establish your credentials as an expert in in the hi-fi world, because I know there are a lot of armchair experts out there on comment sections, because I see plenty myself. Now, I am not an expert, but I would definitely consider you to be a hi-fi expert. And I think the the number of years of experience feeds into one standing as an expert. You know, like I think the more you do it, the more you learn, the more mistakes you make, the more you learn from those mistakes, and the more you know risks you've taken, and the more kind of little things that you pick up from colleagues and things like that. And the reason I'm talking about this is because you wanted to come back on this podcast for a third time to debunk some myths about hi-fi and. Originally, we were going to do 10, but I know that you've got a couple of bonus myths up your sleeve. <laughs> so <laughs> with these, I mean, this, this, I know that from our email exchange a couple of months ago, when we were sort of cutting this out, this list seemed to come together pretty quickly. So it seems like you've kind of had these sort of tucked away in the back of your mind for a while. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, I, obviously I go to hi-fi shows. I enjoy going to hi-fi shows because I can meet the public and mm. get to know who, A, who my customers are and, and B, what people are looking for. You know, that's an essential part of, of the design process, if you like. Uh, but the, the questions that I guess get asked are the sort of questions which I see on forums, I see on social media, Mm. Um, they're they're propounded, and, and uh, who who starts these things? I don't know, but somebody <laughs> somewhere will will start with a with an idea and put themselves forward as, oh, this must be because, and then before you know it, it's repeated and copied and pasted into forums and pasted into Facebook comments, and it catches on and it mm. becomes a self evident truth. And and a lot of these things are just what I call hi-fi myths. Right. They are not real. Um, and as an engineer, I'm always interested in what is real. What what is it that correlates between, let's say, what we're hearing and what we're measuring? What is the basis of the science behind um, the engineering of of all hi-fi products? What's in the recording chain and so on? Mm. So it, it really annoys me to <laughs> an incredible degree Can't when this imagine. stuff when this stuff keeps on being repeated over and over again so i i just want to get out there and mm. sort of put put a few of these myths to bed and and try and give people an idea of a how they came about and b what the real science and engineering is behind them can I try and guess how the first one came about? I'll read it out in a minute, but it's actually related to a video I put out this week. And I still see in the comment section people saying, well, high-res audio, there's no need for it because we can only hear up to 20K. So why would we need a sampling rate you know, that goes up to 48, which therefore would give us a recorded playback of uh, 24 kilohertz, according to the Nyquist theorem? So... On the on the face of it, it seems kind of intuitively correct, doesn't it? Like, well, why would you want to go beyond 20K? Because we can't hear that far. And you've written as your first myth that you want to debunk is that high res sounds better because of the ultrasonic content. So why, why is this a myth, Peter? <laughs> well, I would say, John, that you are absolutely right. 
Um, we can't hear beyond 20 kilohertz. Um, a lot of us, <laughs> my, I mean, at my at my advanced age, I can't hear beyond about 14 kilohertz in one ear and 15 in the other, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty good, yeah. I have to say, because you know a lot of people. Um, that have been around as long as I have have got vastly worse hearing than that. Mm. Um, but we certainly, e- even a baby struggles to hear past 20 kilohertz. So why does it matter that we have to have these high sampling rates? Do they sound any different? What's really going on? And always people come back to this, well, it's high res sounds better because there's stuff happening. There's harmonics happening beyond 20 kilohertz that even though we can't hear them directly, we can sense them in some strange way. Or that there's something going on beyond 20 kilohertz, which lends a sort of air and ambience to the sound, which affects the, the tones further down. And uh, it's just not true. You know, mm. you, you can, you can do all sorts of clever, filtering effects to show that it isn't true so i however i'm a firm believer that high resolution sounds better uh, so why should this be hmm. very simple answer let's go back to the beginning and talk about what was happening when we were playing analog so if we talk about tape recorders for example i'll come on to vinyl later because that's a whole different subject but let's stick Mm. with tape recorders because music in the 60s and 70s and 80s was recorded on tape Mm. Uh, and i used to buy tapes and replay tapes and they were extremely good and the if you look at the engineering of tape recorders um there is in tape recording what is called a bias signal on the record head. The bias signal is an ultrasonic signal which acts as a carrier for the audio waveform. And the reason it does that is because you have to excite the magnetic domains on a tape to a very high rate in order to be able to uh, lay the audio onto the tape, if you like. Mm. Now, the early tape recorders had bias frequencies which were around sort of 50 or 60 kilohertz area if you were lucky um, and they distorted quite a lot at high frequencies it's very simple to sampling systems for digital audio um, the nyquist theorem comes into into play here just as well mm. um, when tape recorders started pushing their bias frequencies up to 80 to 100 kilohertz everything sounded cleaner and then when you got to 150 to 250 kilohertz suddenly everything was cleaned up the reason for this is because you are not distorting the waveform at, at high frequencies. It really does become cleaner the faster you sample. Then the next thing happened, of course, was that CD came in. And during the time that CD came in, the hi-fi enthusiasts like, like me were going, you really don't need amplifiers with tone controls because tone controls are filters and filters often get in the way of the musicality mm-hmm. uh, that, that you know, I, I as a journalist, was promoting at the time. So there was some amplifiers around with tone controls, which did a good job where the tone controls and the filters were well thought through, like the A&RA60. And there were other amplifiers like Name who said, no, no tone controls, you don't need them, you should be hearing what's on the record. 
and they sounded really good. So we were having amplifiers with minimal filtering involved. And then along came CD. And what did CD have? It had a brick wall filter at 20 kilohertz. Incredibly steep filter. Mm. And the original, I don't know whether you've ever listened, John. Are you are you old enough to have listened to the early CD players? Just. Well, my dad first got a CD player in 88. So it's probably a bit, he was a bit late. I mean, I know they yeah. were knocking about in the UK from as early as 85, 86. But I do know that kind of hardness that you're talking about. Oh, it was it was not just hard, it was sterile. Mm. I mean, the, the CD, we, <laughs> we used to do <laughs> demos of CD. The best CD player we, we could find was the Boothroyd Stuart Meridian, mm. uh, which was based on a, on a Philips chip, but with, um, with Bob Stewart's uh, output stage, which improved it a lot. But it still sounded boring and sterile compared to compared to LP. Mm. Um, but of course, people wanted CD because you got rid of all the noise, all the crackles, all the pops. And if you compared it to the sort of turntables that the majority of people had, it sounded better. Mm. So fair enough. But for for audio enthusiasts, no, early CD was just awful. And you have to lay the blame at that filter. Can you explain if, to us? Sorry, sorry to interject. Can you explain to us why um, the filter sitting so close to the upper end of the audible band is is such a bad thing? Also, the steepness of the filter is such a bad thing. Yes, if you look in the time domain, and you can find uh, oscillograms of this or graphs of this on online, um, the early filtering that was done um, by four CD, the, the twenty kilohertz brick wall filter has both post and um, pre-echoes. Mm. Uh, so there are outs- oh, if you take a, any transient, even if it's one kilohertz, and put it through that filter, you will get a, a pre-echo and a post-echo. Mm. Now these, they're, they're very short duration, but you can, as a, when combined with the musical waveform, you can easily hear what the filter's doing. Now, as CD uh, designers really got into how do we design better and better filters, everything got better. And nowadays you can buy DACs, which have extremely good filtering in them, and it's no longer so much of a problem. Can you explain to us why we need a filter in the first place for digital audio? Yeah, it comes back to what you were saying about the Nyquist system. So the Nyquist theorem is a mathematical one, and it basically says that to sample a frequency, um, to sample a sine wave, and all musical waveform, all musical waveforms can be broken down to a series of sine waves. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to sample a sine wave, you have to sample it at least twice in order to get some sort of um, resemblance to that waveform that you can then re- reconstruct when you take it from digital back to analog. Now, if you look at a reconstructed 20 kilohertz sine wave that's sampled at 44 kilohertz, it looks fairly distorted. Mm. But maybe that doesn't matter too much because we're talking about the limits of human hearing and you could say, well, you know, What's happening up at 20 kilohertz is hardly audible. Fair enough, but you really have to deal with the problems that the filters come in. So 
What happens then if we say, instead of sampling at 44 kilohertz, we're going to sample at 96 kilohertz? Now, yes, you're sampling at a higher rate, so your 20 kilohertz waveform starts to look cleaner. But I would still argue that that is barely audible. But what is audible is the fact that you've now moved the filtering from 20 kilohertz up to 48 kilohertz. And so you're now, you've now got the problems that the filters introduce way into the ultrasonic region where they certainly aren't audible. And possibly SACD, which is a completely different way of, of encoding and decoding signals, um, and which has, uh, depending on the, uh, where the, the reconstruction rate, if you like, the equivalent sampling rate uh, can be varied in DSD. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be one particular rate. It depends mm. on, the re- on the recording engineer and the mastering engineer. But it can be pushed out so that you could um, have sampling up to 100 kilohertz. Generally, with SACD, because of its rising noise floor, you don't want a system which goes beyond 50 kilohertz. But SACD a lot of people say sounds better than than the standard Philips mm. Red Book method of, of recording. Yeah, unfortunately, so little music is available on SACD. It's just, to me, it's, I mean, it's just an academic exercise when you listen to SACD. You go, yeah, that sounds great, but what else can I get? And there's not very much. So. Yeah, but at least you can go on to CoBuzz or Tidal now, and you've got a choice between, you know, 96, 24-bit and 44 kilohertz, 16-bit. Hmm. And you can listen to the two and decide yourself. So what you're essentially saying, I think, is that by having a higher sample rate, <clears throat> excuse me, your filter is moved further away from the upper limit of the audible band, so it doesn't trouble as as much the time domain response of the signal. Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's that's the way it was explained to me. I think actually by Bob Stewart, believe it or not, oh, about, no, about, about, about six or seven years ago, because he, he kind of gave me a little bit of a 101 on all of this, because I was asking about pre-ringing and post-ringing, and he's like, okay, this is what's going on here. I yeah. obviously don't remember all of it, but so, you know, I'm always reluctant to step into comment responses, or even on my own channel, about this, because I'm not 100% sure, but you've just confirmed that what i think about filters and then being further away from the audible band as being correct. Yeah, and, and I, there, there was a huge amount of discussion when Hi-Res first came in as to whether it was worthwhile, because a lot of these old recordings um, that, have, that have been remastered for digital haven't got anything, any upper harmonics beyond 20 kilohertz. Mm. So if you look at um, you know, Led Zeppelin IV, for example, um, there's there's nothing on the t- much on the tape beyond beyond about 18 kilohertz as far as I remember from from measuring the mastering, and hmm. um, but it's been issued. You can get it on Cobuzz or Tidal as a, as a 90, 96 kilohertz 24 bit. Right. What, what's the point in that if there's no ultrasonic stuff? And I mean, the, the, I think magazines even went as far as to. Um, do a, a spectrograph of, of a lot of these high-res downloads that that you could buy um, and found that uh, you know, there wasn't any information up there. So was it worth spending the extra money on a high-res download compared to a, a standard 44 kilohertz download? Mm. I would still maintain, yes, there is, because of the filtering. 
Right. If you can get the filtering out of the way, it will sound better. Is this in any way connected to the idea that certain DAC chips have certain operational sweet spots? So let's say, let's pick an ESS chip. I mean, I'm just picking them out of the ether. There's no mm. truth in this. I'm just using them as, as an example. But let's say you feed them a 96 kilohertz signal and then a 44.1, and maybe that DAC chip is much happier, or maybe it has different behavior at 96 than it does at 44.1, and therefore will sound better at 96, and which is often why when people upsample a red book or sorry, a CD quality 44.1 to 96, it sounds better. It's because not just because of the filtering, but because of the, the DAC chip's optimal behavior. Or am I? Is that just some other myth that I've plucked from the ether, Peter? <laughs> no, uh, it's a good point. When I first joined IAG, uh, the Audio Lab uh, CD player was just being developed, and I got pulled in by by the engineer um, to say, "I want you to listen to these three things and tell me which sounds best." Uh, and I was still in the process of really not liking CD that much, so I, I, I sort of cringed at this, and I thought, okay, I'll sit down. And what he played me was outstanding. Right. I mean, it completely floored me. I'd never heard digital sound so musically involving in my life. Which CD was, player was this, just so people people could know? This is a Audio Lab AT200. Okay, okay. Um, and... Uh, I, I was also able to tell the difference between the three things he was playing. And I said, right. what are those three things? And he said, they are different filters. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he took me through the process because he was using the ESS chip. And the one thing that ESS did, which very few DAC manufacturers did, was they opened up their source code to digital engineers who wants to use their chip. And he had gone into the source code and he showed me that he could actually manipulate the, everything that was going on in the chip. Wow. Um, way, way deep down into the time domain. And as a result of that, he came up with, I think, six different filters that you could choose from, some of which were phase coherent, um, some of which were absolutely flat uh, frequency response wise, and so on. Um, and the idea was to give the user that choice on playback. Hmm. Um, but very quickly, we found once once we put the Audio Lab 8200 on the market, that users would stick to probably one out, one or two filters were their favourites. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean that that was that was a benchmark product if ever there was one. It uh, it it really shook people up. I think what what could be done with DAX, right? So it, but did that upsample to to a higher sample rate, or was that no, bit, no, bit, it was it was just taking what was coming in. It had very obviously very good clocking, and that mm. you know that brings us on to the another subject of, well, it of does, yeah, where, at, where jitter yes. comes in, but we'll yes, come on to that later. Uh, but it it's it, it really set the benchmark for what you could do with high resolution playback and. What you could do actually with even 44 kilohertz playback, it, it suddenly made even 44 kilohertz sound listenable, which was great. Mm. But the high resolution really shot. Right. Okay. Um, so, yes, it's down to how you manipulate the data as it goes through the DAC. 
Simple as that, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to number two, because it's kind of related. And you've written super tweeters work because they reveal the ultrasonic content. Yeah, and this goes back to when SACD was introduced, because I was at a mission in the UK at the time, and we got a call from our Japanese distributor who said, Peter, you have to design speakers that go up to 100 kilohertz, or I can't sell them. <laughs> okay. And I went, you know what? And he said, Sony have issued this edict that in order to play back SACD, your system must have a bandwidth from 10 hertz to 100 kilohertz. <laughs> Good old Sony. <laughs> and I went, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, really? He said, yes, we can now cannot sell anything in Japan unless it goes up to them. So I thought, oh, God. Um, anyway, I t- at that time, Tanoi were huge sellers of speakers mm. in Japan. Um, and I, I got onto Tanoi and I said, are you being faced with this? And they said, yes, we are being faced with this. And what we're doing is we're introducing a super tweeter. So I went, you've got a super tweeter that goes up to 100 kilohertz? Yes, we have. (laughs) Now, I knew (laughs) I got hold of one of their super tweeters and realized that it had an Audax dome. Now, we were buying tons of Audax off um, of tons of drive units off Audax for mm. mission. So I got onto the Audax distributor I knew really, really well. And I said, uh, what's this Audax dome that Tanoi are using? And he said, oh, it's so-and-so and so-and-so. I said, but that doesn't go up to 100 kilohertz. He said, no, but it does go up to 30 kilohertz, and it has a second harmonic, which is at 60 kilohertz, and it has a third harmonic, which is at 90 kilohertz. So <laughs> it's near enough. If you do a spectrum <laughs> of of SACD being fed into it, you will see that there is some output <laughs> up to up to uh, hundred kilohertz. But it's just harmonics. Yeah, but it's just harmonics. But, right. Okay. So I went, oh, okay. <laughs> Scratch head. And then we got, of course, Tanoi were promoting this not just in Japan, but worldwide. Because mm. you know why wouldn't they? You, if anybody who had a dual concentric could buy a super tweeter to sit on the top of this, and reviewers were getting these things and going, "Wow, you know, you really can hear the difference." And once again, we had all this nonsense about whether you can hear above twenty kilohertz, mm. and they were going, "But it must be true because when I put this super tweeter on, everything sounds airier and more." reverberant and i can hear more ambience and i've got all this extra high frequency detail so it must be true that i can hear beyond 20 kilohertz Mm. so i actually as well as looking at what the super tweeter did beyond 20 kilohertz i looked at what it was doing below 20 kilohertz because that's what you do as an engineer you look at what the whole bandwidth of any item does Mm -hmm. and the crossover for the Tannoy Super Tweeter was 12 dB per octave. So okay. if you set it, uh, I think they were bringing it in because the, the Tannoy Dual Concentric was giving up at about 16 or 17 kilohertz. Mm-hmm. They were rolling it in. So they had a crossover frequency about 17 or 18 kilohertz. I can't remember exactly, which meant that 
you were only 12, let's say it was 18 kilohertz. So that means you were only 12 dB down at 9 kilohertz. So from 9 kilohertz upwards, this super tweeter was producing quite a lot of audible treble detail. Oh, I see. This is what reviewers and owners were hearing. They were plugging this thing in and going, wow, listen to all all that extra trouble, air and ambience, which is upper harmonics. You know, anything above 10 kilohertz is upper harmonics. Hmm. Um, And we can hear all this extra detail. Well, you know, you're still only 24 dB down, which is just audible at 4.5 kilohertz. So it's coming into the upper regions of the presence region. And it's 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 all audible. <laughs> so was that was it just providing an amplitude boost then yeah. say between nine and eighteen? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And that's what you could hear. So just a brighter treble. <laughs> it's just a brighter treble. <laughs> well, I, I guess bright's probably not the right word, but I, yeah, I know what no. I mean. No. Yeah, okay. Well that, I mean, the thing is, it, even if it is uh, all the Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, people like us, we want to explain why to our audiences because it's not enough just to say the what you have to say well why is it doing this or you want to have a go at explaining that so i guess if if reviewers had just stopped it's you know it's saying well i can hear more high frequency information and stop there you might not have been so troubled by it but i think it's the the attempt and the the erroneous attempt at trying to explain why and talking about ultrasonics when they are well, they might be there, but you, we can't hear them, right? Yeah, uh, the, uh, this this is you know a lot of this is marketing speak. I mean, obviously, Tannoy wanted to sell super tweeters. They wanted mm. to follow the SACD dictum. The reason Sony went for the SACD dictum is because they wanted to promote SACD as being sounding better. Uh, and the marketing people went. Uh, obviously, the marketing people for Sony went. Well, what's so great about this system? And the Sony engineers said. Well, it goes up to 100 kilohertz, which it didn't because of the rising noise floor. You really have to filter it out above 50 kilohertz. Mm. But the system was capable of of having 100 kilohertz bandwidth. So the marketing people went, yes, this is great (laughs) because CD only goes up to 20 kilohertz. Therefore, we can market SACD as having a bandwidth which is five times greater than CD. Right, and that that was the marketing that went out there. Now, whether Sony engineers cringed at this, I suspect a lot of them did. Um, they, I don't know, but uh, the marketing people, of course, had a, a, a great time with it and put this about that you can hear ultrasonic stuff, hmm. and it, the media just followed it like sheep. Is there any truth to the idea, Peter, that ultrasonics can be? sensed by our skin we can sense a lot of things from our skin but it generally tends to be low frequency stuff not high frequency stuff okay yeah i mean Um, i think i mean just from hearing you talk about these things especially the super tweeter thing i think it, it does feed into why much of the audiophile customer base who have been around for many years many of them are now somewhat cynical you know, they're like, oh, I don't believe this. It's just marketing bullshit. Because you've just given a great example of what, <laughs> in layman's term, we might call marketing bullshit. So, <laughs> yeah. Indeed. And, yes, it's it's all it's always a problem uh, when you let the marketing people loose on things. 
um, they always come to you and say, you know, what's so great about this? And you try and brief them on the basic engineering, and then they they pick on one thing and run away with it. Right. It's a bit like when um, the I've forgotten his name now, but it's a very very famous um, American. Uh, he was actually English, but he worked worked in America. Um, uh, ad person who mm. who basically went to Rolls Royce because Rolls Royce having trouble selling anything in America, and he went and visited the Rolls Royce factory, and was was told all sorts of wonderful things about Rolls Royce engineering. But the one thing he picked on was, you know, they sat him in a Rolls Royce and drove him at 70 miles an hour and said, this is how quiet a Rolls Royce is at 70 miles an hour. And he said, yeah, it's so quiet. I can hear the ticking of the clock. And the the guy who was giving (laughs) the demo said, yeah, it's a dratted clock. It's the one thing that I can't shut up. (laughs) But he came back. And he wrote this advert for Rolls-Royce, which appeared in American magazines, which said, at 70 miles an hour, the loudest sound in a Rolls-Royce is the ticking of the clock. And it sold Rolls-Royces. It's a great way to sell. That's, I love it that. It is. It's a great way to sell. But that's what ad people do. And you've got to admire them. You know, I admire marketing people. I, I don't have any, any uh, I don't really get upset by them um, until they overstep the mark. Yeah, I think the overstepping the mark is that it, that it is what contributes to this sort of sense of jadedness that customers feel when they when they're presented with a new bit of tech. So I think as long as it doesn't contribute to that, it's okay. I don't think talking about a clock in a Rolls Royce would make future car consumers more wary of what Rolls Royce say in the future because they can probably see the fun side of what's going on. There's like a there's a nod and a wink to it, right? And I think as long as the nod and the wink is is clear to the the would be consumer, they're okay with it. You know, they're okay to go along with the ride because you're giving them permission to to almost deceive you just a little bit. You know, but I think yeah, bold claims about ultrasonics. Yeah, that's 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 sticky, isn't it? It is, and you know, whenever the marketing people send stuff to me for approval. I always double check it to make sure that the engineering is correct. Right. Um, if they overstep the mark and say something which palpably isn't correct, then I'll, I'll reword it or strike it out or whatever. It's the only way to deal with it. But I see loads and loads of stuff um, appearing in, in magazines which uh, where, where the marketing people have run away with themselves <laughs> and, right. and are saying something which cannot be backed up at all, and that annoys that that I think annoys everybody in that in that case. It does, but like that brings us to number three, myth number three, because I think this one is is especially hard for manufacturers to substantiate, and that is that digital audio is is basically not just ones and zeros, and it is kind of susceptible to interference so basically not all digital sources sound the same and you know I, I, you know i've heard enough to know that this is true but if i try and explain this to my let's say my casual audiophile buddy who's just just got a cd player he'll go well this is bullshit john this is it's digital it's perfect yeah this digital is perfect thing was again you know, marketing by philips when cd came out and it's it's never been true, and it never will be true. Uh, it 
digital has the same problems as the method of storing any any data which has to reconstruct something as difficult as a musical waveform. Mm. Uh, it, it's the reconstruction. It, it's the it's the encoding and the reconstruction where the problems lie. Mm. The 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 actual storage is generally okay. Um, I say generally okay because you know you can corrupt things. Mm-hmm. But the biggest problem with the 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 ones and noughts aspect and the the thing i get thrown in my face all all the time by people who say no digital's perfect because it is just ones and zeros and it doesn't matter how much you distort the ones and zeros um it, in other words it doesn't matter how much you distort the digital waveform it will you can always reconstruct it and always be the same mm. um it's not true the the method of reconstruction has to be very very accurate mm. so if we just take uh, the clock signals so digital ones and noughts have to come in at a specific rate mm. into the the DAC in order for the DAC to be able to do a, a, a time and frequency accurate reconstruction and we call that clocking mm-hmm. now there's all sorts of ways of that we could get round it. Um, the, the DACs nowadays do what is called a asynchronous clocking, so that they take in the data stream, they look at it, and they basically reclock it before it goes to the DAC. So the DAC doesn't have a problem. Um, but before that, there were DACs had a real problem with with data coming in with where the clock was was varying um it was being fed you know dax were being fed stuff where the clock was not a constant clock and that caused them all sorts of audible problems uh, and on top of that we have what is called jitter and jitter is a sort of time domain phenomenon where the the clock is sut- subtly shifting difficult to describe this one but it's also has been a problem it's now not so much of a problem. But I was shown by um, a magazine editor uh, some time ago that you know we all regard, well, a lot of us anyway, regard the optical link between digital equipment as being probably the best because you don't have grounding problems. So it's a non-physical link. Um, and he showed that a long optical cable had more jitter than a short optical cable. Mm-hmm. That worried the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, this has been explained to me a couple of times that the Toslink isn't necessarily the best because it is more prone to yeah to, to jitter, and mm. not just in the cable itself, but also in in the in the decoder of the of the DAC end that takes the light signal and converts it back into electrical pulses. That itself can introduce jitter into into the mix. It can so, if it's not done well. Yeah. Right. So by yeah. the time the signal has reached the DAC chip, it might have gone through a couple of clocking stages, and if it doesn't start at the, at the entry point of the DAC timed properly, it, it might even, I guess, be subjected to another couple of rounds of sort of slight time smearing by those other clocking stages. So when it gets the DAC chip. It's it's fully smeared, like as in the the, yeah, the time arrival of those ones and zeros has been, uh, yeah, just messed with really. 
So it's yeah. no longer accurate. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about, again, about the Audio Lab 8200 was that it used a master clock. Mm. And every single clock in the system ran off that master clock. It had asynchronous inputs, so it didn't care what the clock of the um, stream, digital stream that was being fed to it was. Right. It just took it in and reclocked it according to that master clock, and everything was closely tied to the master clock. Um, and the, uh, immense care was taken over the engineering of the clock systems in the 8200 to make to make sure it worked. Now we have we. I mean, you buy a good quality, well-engineered DAC now, it would have taken all this into account. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Really? Because um, I mean, I mean, I hate, I hate to, um, I guess, contradict what you're saying, Peter. But my experience, mm -hmm. even with you know, let's say, let's pick a five grand DAC, right? Yeah. And let's say I feed it with a Raspberry Pi USB signal. Mm -hmm. And then I take away the Raspberry Pi and I put in, say, I don't know, a $5,000 Inuus network streamer. Invariably, that Inuus streamer will sound better than the Raspberry Pi, even with a modern DAC that many people would consider to be well-designed. So, Okay, let's, let's backtrack a bit because mm. you're saying two different things here. Mm -hmm. uh, all I'm saying is that you don't have to worry about what goes on inside a DAC anymore because... All good DACs, the engineer understands what is necessary in order to make the data go through the DAC in the correct manner, and that's why we that's why we have such great DACs. Yeah. Now, so then it comes down to why do DACs sound different? So let's deal with that one first. Well, DACs yes. sound different because yes, of the because of the filtering that that people use, as we talked about before, mm. um, and also. Largely because of their output stages, you know, we we've got an analog section in a DAC. That analog section is going to have an, a, a sonic effect, just like any amplifier does. So, you know, there's there's that aspect as well. But what you're talking about is what happens in streaming, and yes. I'm absolutely fascinated by this because Me too. <laughs> I, I mean, I I. I, I I wherever I go, I use a streaming software called Rune, mm -hmm. yep. um, which a lot of audiophiles and a lot of my contemporaries use because yes. it is ubiquitous. You can find it anywhere. It's easy to use. You can feed it from all sorts of, uh, you know, feed it from Tidal and Cobuzz and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, internet radio, everything goes through it, so it's great. It's easy to use, but it also sounds better than, let's say, Jay River. Okay. How can how can that be when it's just a streaming service? And then I get and then I get onto hardware. So, um, you know, I've, I've used various bits of hardware to to feed the stream to um, to these systems, and and they all sound different as well. I have, frankly, I haven't looked into it as to what goes on, but I think that there is there is something going on uh, which is affecting the way that the, the digital data is being fed well i think it's not just a matter of data but also a matter of electrical noise but again yeah. my yeah. my understanding is is not that of say the guys at inuos or mark jenkins and, and antipodes or anybody else designing a high-end server and i think it's very easy for the layman to look at it and go well it's just a computer and therefore it will same, sound the same as any other computer 
fed USB yeah. into a DAC. And that's not what my experience tells me. And no. that's not what some of my audience tell me. And I think you're saying mm. a similar kind I, of thing. No, but I ab- absolutely agree. You know, I'm, I'm a great fan of the, the Lumen streamers, I suppose, right. because to me, they just sound inherently musical. They, mm. they do what I would expect, what I used to expect vinyl to do back in the day. But would you say that a, a Lumen streamer connected to the same DAC sounds better than, say, a MacBook or a, a, a sort of an average laptop? I have to done that. I have mm-hmm. done that. I took my MacBook to the Munich show one year mm-hmm. um, and was playing that. And then our distributor came in with the Lumen streamer and we put that on. And I used the same source um, from Cobuzz. Mm-hmm. And went, oh my goodness, this is <laughs> this is a whole level better. I think it's it's a real eye opener for people who are naysayers who say that this can't possibly be be the case. But when they first sit in front of an, an AB like this and they are gobsmacked, as I was when I first experienced this. But it's mm. but you know at the start of this sort of myth, this particular myth, I said it's very hard for these manufacturers to prove it you know because people want to see visual proof on a on a website right and i I, they haven't nailed that yet i don't think no it's very very difficult to do but if you talk you know i've talked to the engineers at lumen now Mm. and because at ig we're we're possibly going to include some of their hardware in uh, in some of our products higher-end products Mm. and the the they are totally totally dedicated to in in what they do mm. and completely understand in terms of what they're engineering the effect that these things have but i don't think they can i, I they, it's difficult to explain <laughs> certainly in no, no. terms it's difficult <laughs> it's, to explain yes it is what is going on but Look. it has to do with <laughs> handling the data with kid gloves yes and processing it in such a way that it as clean as possible mm-hmm. look let's move on because we are you know a good chunk of time in peter but we're about to hit number four yeah. and the, the fourth myth that you've you've submitted is that analog sounds better than digital so lp versus cd so uh, i mean this is a, a flame war that goes back well literally decades now and refuses to die so what have you got to say about this <laughs> uh well like you know we've we've already covered one of the reasons why CD didn't sound any good when it first came out, mm. um, but sounds a whole lot better now. But I know of lots and lots of people who say, I only play records. I don't get the same enjoyment out of playing CDs. Mm-hmm. And initially, for I suppose almost a decade, I felt like that. And then as digital systems got better, I started to earlier the other way. And now, 99% of the time, I'll be using streaming. Hmm. Um, so my view, my likes have changed. Hmm. I find listening, generally listening to, to digital now to be superior listening to analog. But I have no gripe whatsoever to those people who still like analog. So let me try and explain what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the majority of people now use records. And I don't think that people understand the process that goes through 
when you make a record. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about the physical side of it, although that's very important. You know, what goes on in the pressing plant, the type of vinyl you use and so on. Obviously, that's important to the sound. Um, Obviously, what happens within the turntable is also extremely important. And that could be a whole new subject, which I could talk (laughs) about for hours, but I won't. Um, What I'm talking about is what happens when people literally make a record. Mm. The master tape comes out the studio. Mm-hmm. It goes to what to goes to what is then called a mastering lab. Now, a mastering lab is like a studio. It has a pair of monitor speakers. It has a mixing desk with all the EQ on it, and it has a cutting lathe. Mm-hmm. And in charge of all that are one or two mastering engineers. And there, the reason this came about is because initially. The when I don't know whether people know this, but the RIAA curve is designed to subdue low frequencies and boost high frequencies. The reason for that is that if you put low frequencies onto a record um, so that their amplitude is flat, the the groove displacement, the wiggles in the groove, if you like, are huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also the surface noise on the record is very high. And uh, it, and the the high frequencies are buried in the noise. Mm. So what you have to do is you have to uh, have what we call an inverse RIAA curve, which suppresses the low frequencies and boosts the high frequencies. Mm-hmm. And then when you replay it, the low frequencies are boosted, the high frequencies um, are turned down uh, according to the RIAA curve, and uh, you lose a lot of the surface noise as a result, mm-hmm. so they get a better signal-to-noise ratio. Now, in order to make sure that the bass on records um, is not so heavy as to make one groove run into another mm. or cause heavy distortion, uh, the mastering engineer has to look at uh, the waveform that is coming in, look at the frequency content, and also look at the amplitude. So when you're mastering, say, an orchestral work, which has you know between a 40 and 60 dB dynamic range, he has to actually alter the width between the grooves in order to make sure that the loud bits are not so loud that one groove runs into another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he can make up for that by running the grooves closer together during the quiet bits, uh, so gain a bit more record space back because that's the only way to fit 35 minutes on one side of a record. Mm. Um, And that was initially what the mastering engineer had to do. Now, what happened with uh, when rock came in, uh, pop records came in, was that mastering engineers started going, hmm, you know what? I don't think that this tape, which I've got in my hands, is going to sound particularly good when it goes out into the great wide world. So what I'm just going to do a bit of EQing in order to (laughs) make it sound more punchy when it's played on car radios or jukeboxes or whatever, right? Mm. So it became typical for mastering engineers to completely re-equalize the sound that was coming from the tape and going onto onto the acetate from mm-hmm. which the uh, master stamper is is made. Onto the lacquer. Yeah, onto the lacquer. And, of course, mm-hmm. from the lacquer, you then 
make a metal master, and from the metal master, you then make a number of of daughters, and from those, you make the stampers. Mm. So it's a very involved process. But the thing we really ought to look at is the mastering, because what it means is what has come out from the studio and what ends up on the LP are not necessarily the same. And I know this because I was a great fan of um, progressive rock when I was in London, working in London, uh, and I knew a guy who was a tape technician to the studio, and he bought some master tapes back for me to play on my tape recorder, and they sounded totally different to the LPs that I got mm. of the same music. So I know that you know I know what goes on. If you really want a lowdown into it, then the one of the famous mastering engineers in the 60s and 70s um, was a guy called George Peckham who used to inscribe on the run-out grooves of the masters that he did, um, either Porky or... Porky um, Prime Cuts? Por- yeah, Porky Prime Cuts. Oh, is it Porky him that did that? Okay, Pork I, Duck. Yeah, and I remember if, that, yeah. <laughs> if you, there's, there's a great YouTube video. If you just go into YouTube and do Vinyl Mastering by George Peckham. Mm, okay. And you'll, you, he explains what, he's, what, he, what he did and what he does, what, he's, what he was doing recently. Now, he worked at Abbey Road. He worked for Apple. Um, various people set up his own mastering lab in the end. Very, very famous. Mm. But famous because he produced a particular sound off those records. Now, mm. if you then go, let's take Led Zeppelin four, right? Mm. Stairway to Heaven. Everybody knows it, right? Mm-hmm. You listen to George Peckham's cut of that and then compare it to what you can get off Cobuzz. There are, as far as I know, two or three versions on Cobuzz. So there's an original master, there's a remaster, and then there's a, a super remaster, mm. um, a special edition. They all sound different, every single one. But if you concentrate on Bonham's drumming in the Peckham edition, Mm. when the drums come in, it's like thunder. You really feel it in the chest. Mm -hmm. You don't get that off the digital. So if it comes to Led Zeppelin IV or Jimi Hendrix Electric Ladyland, yes, I'll plump for the vinyl every time. (laughs) Right. So what do you do about that? You know, analog, digital, just go for the one which sounds better. Don't worry about whether analog is better sounding because it's analog. Um, that's, well, you know. I mean, that, Peter, here you've, hit, you've, you've struck on something that I've been talking about on my YouTube channel this last week. And I've been, right. I've been basically saying that the, the quality of the mastering trumps the delivery format every time. So, you know, and I'm trying to explain because here I've got like walls of CDs, I've got wall of records upstairs, and I stream because I know that you know I generally choose the format which gives me where if I if I can discern which one it is, I'll choose the format that gives me the best mastering quality or the way the what I perceive to be the best mastering quality. That might be high dynamic range, but in some, some records it might be lower dynamic range, but a sort of a punchier sound. It just depends. But I'm just I'm a little bit over format evangelism from anybody you know like oh it, you can't beat the sound of vinyl or high res is the ultimate in audible reproduction i don't think any of these things are true when you've got this this moving th- thing that you can't control and that that is mastering quality 
because it's out of our, all of our control. We have no input on it at all. So essentially, we could get a high-res file with a terrible-sounding master you know, contained within it. And I just think that's for the birds. I mean, why would you bother with that, even if it is high-res? It's, yeah. it's high-res garbage, right? But you yeah, could have... I mean, if you... you, if yeah. you, if you uh, I mean, another one that, that, that uh, I'm, I was a big fan of back in the day was Close to the Edge by Yes. Mm-hmm. You listen to Close to the Edge by Yes on the original, um, the original CD, and it sounds horrible compared mm-hmm. to vinyl. But then Steve Wilson, who was one of the Stephen Wilson, who was one of the um, assistant engineers uh, on that album, came back and did a remaster. Uh, I'm trying to remember, 2008, 2009, something, and his remaster sounds way better than vinyl. Right. So. Yeah, but, but what would you Wilson, say about that? But he also mm. remastered Relayer, which was a later album by then, and mm. made a complete mess of it, in my <laughs> opinion. The, the vinyl sounds way better. So yeah. Okay, well, go figure. I mean, Stephen Wilson seems to do more things right than wrong, as yeah. far as I can tell, but I'm not, I'm not his dad, so I, I'm not going to keep tabs on him. Um, okay, let's move on. Number five, this is what I see a lot on... Oh, yeah, on very sort of more scientifically minded forums and Facebook groups, you hear people say all amps or DACs sound the same. This this has to be not true, Peter. I mean, there's no way this can be true, right? Well, we've already covered DACs. Now, right. I mean, when, when I first started reviewing for Hi-Fi magazines, uh, I was one of the first subjective reviewers. Mm. And... That caused a lot of furore amongst other reviewers who were basing their reviews on measurement, not on mm-hmm. listening. But mm-hmm. I was all about listening because, yeah, measurements have their place, but really what we should be doing is sitting down and listening to music. And if music sounds better on one piece of equipment than another, then that's got to be a good thing. Mm. Uh, and one of the people that I came up against, in a way, although there was no animosity there, was Peter Walker of Quad. Mm. Because Peter Walker's dictum was, first of all, you should make an amplifier which is as close to a piece of straight wire with gain, which I totally agree with. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a good way um, to approach amplifier design. And the other is that all, competent, all competently designed amplifiers sound the same. Now, you can read into that what you like. Quad in, quad amplifiers have always been pretty well engineered, mm-hmm. uh, so they have all been fairly competent. But I still maintain that all the quad amplifiers that Peter Walker designed sound different. Right. So yes. how do you explain that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And the, 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 the fact is, right, let's just... Broad brush strokes, amplifier design. Three things are going on in an amplifier. Let's just deal with an integrated amplifier because mm-hmm. you know, it encompasses everything. Three things happen in an amplifier. Number one, you have an input. How is that input going to deal with the stuff that it's fed, whether it's digital or analog? Doesn't matter. How is it going to deal with it? Mm. So, what are its input stages going to do? Um, if we consider analog, how is it going to do the RIA equalization? You know, how is it going to handle overload margins? Um, how is it going to handle noise, especially ultrasonic noise? 
Um, what's it going in terms of digital? We all already talked about how's it going to handle the clocking? Mm-hmm. What's it going to do feeding data through the system to the DAC? Um, is there going to be any interference to it on that system? So there's a lot going on on the input side. That's number one. Uh, and then what happens in the control section? What sort of volume control have you got? How are you, are you going to deal with the volume on the digital side or the analog side? Uh, what sort of volume control have you got? How are you going to feed the analog signal through the PCB? Um, what are the tracks going to be like? Are they picking up interference? You know, if, if I see so many amplifiers where you measure them and there's power supply spurii on the, on the audio tracks. Mm-hmm. So you've got interference going on there. You shouldn't be having that. Um, how much crosstalk is there between left and right signals? I've seen amplifi- I've seen preamplifiers where people go, oh, the stereo image on this, it is so incredible. And then you measure it, and it has rising crosstalk towards the treble. Mm. And you think, really? Okay. Um, and then you've got the output section. Now, every power amplifier is really doing one thing. It is, it is shunting the power supply to the loudspeakers. It's a current delivery device. So it depends. It doesn't matter what the output stage is. It depends on what the power supply is. And so many people don't understand this. They think, oh, this output stage has got this, that, and the other. Um, yeah, in the case of quad, uh, we've got the 303, which has got the famous quad triplets output. Um, which is a class AB circuit, and then you've got the the current dumping amplifiers, which deal with it in a totally different way, but they all depend on the power supply. All they do is pushing the current available from the power supply into the loudspeakers. So all these things are very power supply dependent. And it's not surprising they all sound different, mm. quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, you tend to hear the idea that you know, I, I want the amplifier that is as close to the source as possible. But if all amplifiers in the world sound different, and I believe they do, mm. certainly the ones that I've heard, let's say I've heard 500 amplifiers in the last 10 years, not, no two, yeah, no single two sound the same. So yeah. by definition, only one can sound closest to the source, even if that is possible. I don't necessarily believe it is, but they all sound vastly different. I just, I don't understand where this this myth comes from that all amps sound the same. Do you know yeah. where it comes from, Peter? Like, is this? Well, is more- I, th- I think Peter Walker was right. was a big a big promoter of this amongst hi-fi reviewers, mm. um, certainly in the in the seventies, um, the, the mid seventies when you know I and others were doing a lot of subjective work. I think I think he got upset about that because. He famously said, and I don't think it's true, but he did famously say, I don't listen to my amplifiers. I listen to what they do wrong. Could it be that he's just produced a series of amplifiers that have measured almost identically, and therefore he has inferred that they will all sound the same? In his his terms, yes. I mean, his straight wire with gain, what he used to do was, 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 take a circuit and put it in a system so mm. that he could switch it in and out and then he would he would then um, 
do an inverse of the waveform so that he could just listen to the distortion that whatever that circuit was producing. Mm. And his idea was just to get rid of the audible distortion, which is fine. Mm. I mean, it's a good way of doing things. Yeah. But don't claim that everything sounds the same just because you're um, doing that. Right. Well, I guess number six sort of dovetails into number five. And I would say that I also hear this about vinyl. So your number six is that valve slash tube amps are only liked because of their added distortion. And in brackets, you've written and transformers are bad. So yeah, like uh, very often when people, when somebody pops their head up and says, oh, I love vinyl or I love tube amps, there's usually somebody else who's just coming along going, well, that's because you like distortion, right? Which yeah. is just, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you can explain this one, Peter, because you'll do it better, better justice than me. <laughs> yes. Uh, first of all, let's deal with distortion. Because the one thing that really upsets me is <laughs> the people that claim that what we should be doing is producing things with zero distortion. Mm. So let's clear this up to start with. First of all, there have been tons and tons and tons of subjective tests done which show that in terms of total harmonic distortion, which is the main thing that reviewers use to judge mm. amplifiers by, in terms of total harmonic distortion, it's really, really difficult to hear anything below 1%. Mm -hmm. So anybody who says, oh, you like tube amps because their harmonic distortion is in the order of half, half a percent or 0.2% or whatever, compared with modern solid-state amplifiers which have 0, 0, 0, 0.001%, Hmm. distortion um no that claim is rubbish it's it's <laughs> nothing to do with that type of distortion we should instead be looking at other types of distortion uh, which are not harmonically related because things that are harmonically related our ears and brains have difficulty in analyzing analyzing them to that extent but anything that's non-harmonic, our ears pick it up immediately. Mm. So that's another reason why amplifiers sound different. And it's very interesting that valve or tube amps actually do a better job of this in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, compared to transistor amplifiers. And I like a lot of valve amplifiers when they're driving my loudspeakers or anybody else's loudspeakers. Mm. I think a very well-designed valve amplifier has a lot going for it. And I've talked to engineers about this, uh, valve design, good valve designers about this, and they say, yes, we cannot put our finger on it, but there are some things going on. Inside a valve, which, uh, if you like, look after the audio signal rather better than what happens inside a semiconductor. So you're saying it's not related to THD, but to the the, well, the, me the mechanics of a valve, of a tube? The, the, yes, if you like, the electronics, the way that a signal is amplified, the way that a... a the way that the, the electrons are treated when they pass through the space charge of a valve hmm. has a different effect to the way that uh, we can't say electrons move through a semiconductor but they, because they don't, but the way that the, the electronic energy is transferred through mm -hmm. a semiconductor. Um, on the latter, we're talking about quantum mechanics. 
Um, on in terms of valves and tubes, we're talking about the space charge and how the charge is transferred from cathode to from anode to cathode. Mm. So uh, we know that when you change the metallurgy inside a tube, you know you can keep the construction of tube the same, but if you change the types of metals that you use, it things sound different. We mm. don't really understand why these changes are happening because they're at a level that you know we we don't we can't figure out quite honestly. Right, okay. But there is a, there is another aspect to this as well and that is I find semiconductor amplifiers have a very different distortion characteristic if we look at even if we look at harmonic distortion. Mm. Very often with a well-designed valve amplifier, you will see what I call graded distortion. In other words, there's there's usually a prominent second harmonic and then a slightly lower third and a slightly lower fourth and fifth and so on. Mm. A lot of semiconductor amplifiers which use uh, heavy global feedback in order to get this mythical 0.00001% distortion you mainly find that that what they've done is they've got rid of all the odd harmonics, but they've left the even, sorry, even harmonics, but they've left the odd harmonics poking up. Now, they're probably the level that they're not audible. I'll give you that, but I'm wondering what else is going on in there. But we, I think uh, we should be clear to the audience that generally people perceive second-order harmonics to be audibly enjoyable and odd-order harmonics to be less so. Right? Yeah, that... but again, it comes back to only if you can hear it, only right. if it's above 1%. Um, yeah. The other things that are going on is if you look at the outputs, how the output stages behave of a valve or tube amplifier, they go into clipping in a very, very benign fashion. Huh. Whereas a semiconductor amplifier, when it goes into clipping, is horrible. I mean, <laughs> you really, you want to tear your hair out. It's so awful. Right. And what I find with a lot of semiconductors amplifiers is as the power gets higher and you get closer to that clipping point, they start to sound horrible. So generally, I would say the reason that we have such high-powered semiconductor amplifiers now is because they sound better when they're being played at much less than their rated output. Right. So a 100-watt amplifier generally sounds better than a 50-watt amplifier, not because it goes louder, because it doesn't. It's only 3 dB. It's it's hardly discernible. Hmm. Um, but because it actually sounds better when you're running it at 50 watts than when you're running it at a 50-watt amplifier flat out. And that also explains why you can take a 25-watt valve tube amplifier and it sounds as loud as a 100-watt semiconductor amplifier when you really push things. Huh. So that explains why people say, well, tube watts tend to be more potent, John, than solid-state watts. Yeah, they're not really more potent. It just means that you can run a tube amplifier flat out and you won't, you, you're won't. you not worried about it. It sounds, gotcha. Gotcha. sounds much more natural, which is uh, brings us on to the output transformer or transformers in general. Hmm. Transformers got themselves a bad name because most transformers are designed to handle one frequency because they're mates transformers, right? They're... Hmm converting electrical signals at one frequency. Um, and it's tough to design a transformer which has a very wide bandwidth. 
But when you do design a transformer, which has a very wide bandwidth, it's quite a magical thing because it, you can get gain out of it, which is uh, at, at you know low levels of distortion and noise. Mm. And also, it's a protection device. So when you're looking at an input transformer, and up until quite recently, transformers were used a lot in audio gear in order to protect the input stages from all sorts of noise and interference. Um, typically, you know, pro audio used balanced input stages. They were nearly always transformer input stages. Um, up until recently, when we've we've learned how to do it really well with electronics. But also on the output side, the output transformer actually protects against all the crud coming back from a loudspeaker. Because you might think that, oh, all you're doing is sending signals out to a loudspeaker. Hmm. But you're you're talking about really a transmission line. So you have the the output of the output of the amplifier, the power stage of the amplifier, you're then going through cables into a passive loudspeaker which has quite a lot of complex things going on. So there's a filtering network in there, and there's also uh, moving drive units, which mm-hmm. are generating their own signal because the drive unit has mass, therefore it has inertia. So when the music signal stops, it carries on moving. When it carries on moving, it's got a voice coil moving in a gap, so it's then generating a back EMF. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's generating another signal which then comes back through the loudspeaker cable and into the amplifier. And this is one of the reasons why um, outputs with large amounts of global feedback don't sound too good, because they are having to deal with stuff that is coming back from the speaker. Wow, I didn't know this. It's fascinating. They generally do that in a pretty poor way. Wow, okay. I've met a couple of engineers who's test for an amplifier design is to actually feed an audio signal into the output stage and then look at the input of the amplifier to see what the feedback's doing right and it's generally feeding back a very very distorted music signal and of course that is then being amplified so hardly surprising that high levels of global feedback generally sound worse um But you, you, you have when you have a tube valve amplifier and you've got a transformer on the end, there's almost a sort of level of protection between uh, what the output stage is seeing and what's coming back from the speaker. Huh. So, Peter, we can't have a discussion about hi-fi myths without touching on cables. And your seventh hi-fi myth that needs debunking reads speaker cables is there a magic formula which by definition implies that you think that speaker cables sound different to one another yes they do and it's not for the reasons that people go on and on about (laughs) (laughs) is lips cable better because it handles high frequencies in a purer way or its transmission time is better or any of this nonsense it it is quite honestly nonsense the reason that the cables are in everybody's mind and the reason people get some people 
thank God not all, but the reason some people go out and spend tens of thousands of dollars on cables is because they can't do anything else in their system. So back in the day when we weren't worried about cables at all, when people used to hook up speakers with bell wire, um, we had turntables, mm-hmm. and turntables were a real bugger to get right. Excuse my French. Nice. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, if you were a hi-fi expert, and and because I was in retail, yeah, I was pretty good at setting up turntables. The mm. one thing that you could always do was go around to somebody's house and improve their system by setting up their turntable correctly. Actually, you can still do that. If you know about turntables, you can still do that. People, people actually make a profession out of this anyway. Um, but then when CD came in, suddenly there was no longer things that you could do to your system to make it sound better. You know, you couldn't, you put on a different record mat. You couldn't put your turntable on a piece on the slab of concrete or a, um, a piece of slate or whatever. Uh, you, you just had these blocks of equipment. And mm. what was connecting these blocks of equipment? Cables. So retailers pretty quickly cottoned on to we can upgrade your system, sir, by selling you this extra special cable. Uh, but hang on, though, because I, I I wasn't around at the time in the late 70s doing hi-fi, so I, mm. you'll forgive me for kind of referring to secondhand information, but I was told that the late 70s is, is the, roughly the time when people started to cotton on that cable, speaker cables could sound different by you know different, all sorts of different you know, makeups yeah. and... Yeah. So the way that, they were made, right? So, well, so I, I know you because you, you, you mentioned the advent of the CD, and mm. I guess it's just a, either a fortunate or an unfortunate coincidence that a CD came in. People were looking for something to tweak. They couldn't tweak the CD players. So, oh, speaker cables are new. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, it was it came about, but the speaker cable thing came about before before CD, but it didn't rise to the prominence that it's now got, where. Cables are considered to be a big part of system matching. Mm. Um, and they are, but I don't think you have to spend a fortune on these things in order to get a good sound. Agreed. So what is, let's just deal with speaker cables because you know it's something that I have to deal with all the time um, when, I, when I'm setting up systems. Speaker cables sound different because a speaker cable is a transmission line between the amplifier and the loudspeaker. And mm-hmm. as we've talked about, there's a very, very complex signals are going through this system. First of all, you've got current transfer. You know, good amplifier can be putting out somewhere around five to even up to 20 amps of current. Mm. So therefore, a speaker cable should have low resistance. So obviously, back in the day when we uh, were dealing with valve amplifiers and bell wire, um, thankfully speakers were generally eight ohms or 15 ohms so the resistance of the cable didn't matter as much as it does now when we're dealing with speakers which are between two ohms and six ohms if you're lucky Uh, okay yeah so so the resistance of speaker cable is now far more important because we're carrying a lot of current Hmm. but on top of that we've got the construction of the cable and the construction of the cable also gives you capacitance and inductance Hmm. now there's been a preponderance of cables which have high capacitance. And that's been around for quite a long time. I actually got taken in as a reviewer by some early monster cable samples which came my way, Mm. um, which when I put them into my system, 
I immediately thought, God, I've never heard that trouble detail before. What I didn't realize was that the high capacitance of those cables was actually accentuating the trouble. Okay. So it was making the amplifier output stage behave in a different way. Huh. So the whole transmission line between the output stage and the speaker was skewed by the fact there was a high capacitance in the speaker in the speaker cable. And today I still find those myths going on. So, well, I shouldn't say it's a myth because it's a, it's a truth, but I still find the myth that high capacitance speaker cables improve detail. Mm. Is what I'm trying to say. They don't improve detail, they just add more glare, which initially sounds like more detail. Now you've got to like rem- you super tweet a situation. Yeah. You've got to remember that when people go out and spend five thousand pounds on a set of speaker cables, they're not going to come back in and plug them in and go, Oh, these sound exactly like the ones I had. Then A, they're not going to sound exactly like the ones I had because almost certainly they're going to be different in terms of their relationship between the resistance, capacitance, and inductance. Mm. So they're going to have a different, they're going to form a different transmission line path between the amplifier and the speakers. Mm -hmm. So they are going to sound different. The worrying thing for me is when people go, oh, I can hear things I've never heard before. And then six months later, they're going, I can't stand the sound of my system. That's the worrying aspect. Mm. And that generally happens with all these extremely high-capacitance cables. Um, I've talked to designers of these cables, and they say, oh, but high-capacitance, you know, they, they, everything sounds so crisp and detailed. And I go, yeah, but you're driving, you're making amplifiers go into ultrasonic oscillation if... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Come on, you know, right. <laughs> please don't do this. And mm. they go, yeah, but, you know, our cables sell so well because of this. And of course, you, yeah, oh, what can you do about that? If people are willing to buy into this, then it's very difficult to dissuade people. Well, I think if people like the sound of something, it doesn't even have to be a cable. It could be a CD player or a phono stage or whatever. If they like the sound of it and they've got the money and they're prepared to spend the money. I'm not there to police their... No, but I would, spending, you know. I would just say that you've got to be aware of it because I was, as a reviewer, I was taken in by it. I see reviewers still being taken in by these aspects. So they'll, mm. they'll get a pair of speakers in which have got a lot of top-end energy above 5 kilohertz, and they go, I've never heard my th- th- this album sound so transparent and all this detail, etc. suddenly mm. came springing out at me. And I'm thinking, yeah. Because you've got a boost, you've got a six dB boost above five kilohertz. What did you expect? You know, mm-hmm. um, the problem is that as a reviewer, you can't live with those speakers for six months. So at the end of six months, it's giving you a headache because of the high frequency glare, and you just want to chuck the speakers on the fire. Yeah. It's, do you know what I mean? You, you no, I do. do. You do have to try and beware of this immediately liking something because it sounds impressive. And I'd rather go with the speaker cables that, when I put them in, don't make my system sound different at all. Right. They're just almost unimpressive to start with. Right? Absolutely. You, that's, I think, but I think that's true of any hi-fi component because I've made the mistake. I think we've all done it where we've gone with the thing that sounds super Im- impressive and alive and open and it makes us sit up and our eyes widen. 
But after six months, we're like, oh God, this is exhausting. And I don't want to play music anymore. No. So I think you have to, you actually have to make the mistake to realize exactly how, the, how it manifests in your life or how it can manifest. And then you hopefully don't make it again. Yeah. So the question I then get asked is, what are the best speaker cables? And I have to say the best speaker <laughs> cables, from my point of view, as a speaker designer, are the ones which have a balance between resistance, capacitance, and inductance. Um, QED, for example, um, did a research project on this something like 10 years ago, and they've had a panel of people listening to cables. It's exactly what they found. The best-sounding speaker cables, the ones that have a good balance between resistance, capacitance, and inductance. Um, and they That's follow that dictum in their, in their design. Other people do it. There's, I'm not just... You know, it's not just QED that does it. There are other mm. people that do it. But that's the magic formula for me. But that gives something for people to aim at because most consumers would have no clue, including myself. I, I mean, I go and buy, well, I, I don't buy speaker cables because I always use the same brand, but I don't review them. I never comment on them. I just use them. And in fact, I actually downgraded my speaker cables last year because I wanted, I use AudioQuest stuff and I wanted a, a cable that was more flexible so I could route it more easily behind my furniture. So they were like, well, okay, we'll send you this one. So I went from Rocket 88 to Rocket 22. This is audio for stuff. Um, and I'm much happier. And I haven't really noticed maybe a small drop-off in quality, but nothing that's going to trouble me as much as having to route the old Rocket 88 was a pain. Whereas this, because I'm taking stuff in and out all the time, I'd rather have a nice free-flowing cable to work with, you know, more than the best-sounding cable. To err on the side of caution, I'd generally say more inductance less capacitance is a good thing because okay. it, because amplifiers are happier with it i mean name amplifiers in the past um, they're probably different now but name amplifiers in the past had uh, no inductor between the output stages and the output terminals they relied on the inductance of the speaker cable to do the job is that why you had to use their knacker that's why you had to use NAC four yeah. yeah okay yeah. yeah i remember that yeah and that was the worst speaker cable to to route having to twist it like stiff licorice it was just i yeah. was not was not a fan yeah yeah <laughs> but anyway okay let's move on number we're on number eight okay this is a big one uh three-way speakers are better than two-way or conversely full-range speakers are better than two-way yeah so often i uh, <laughs> often used to get this you know i at haybrook i was designing a lot of two-way speakers um at probably our best selling models for two-way speakers and people would come up to me at shows and go well your speakers can't be any good because you haven't got enough drive units as if you know the more drive units the better mm -hmm. and then i'd get on to the uh whatever let's say the extreme audiophiles and they would go, oh, well, crossovers. No, you really shouldn't have crossovers in speakers. The best speakers are full range. Mm. And so you've got this sort of, well, who's right? And actually, nobody's right. Um, I'm sorry to say this, but you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> the best speaker for mid-range that I've ever heard was a full range speaker. It wasn't try even trying to be full range. It was a CS unit. I rang up CS because I was using their drive units, um, Norway manufacturer, 
and and said to them, I need a five-inch speaker for my car. What would you recommend? And they say, well, we've got this mid-range unit, which also handles bass and treble. So we'll send you a pair of those. So they sent me a pair of those. I stuck them in the car. I'd never heard my car radio sound so lifelike. In fact, if there was a if there was a play on the radio and they used extreme sound effects, I'd sometimes jump out of my skin as I was driving along because they sounded so realistic. Mm. Um, so I then tried to make loudspeakers using full-range drive units. And yeah, they were absolutely fantastic in the mid-band, but of course they didn't handle the frequency extremes very well. Mm. So what you get is people who are trying to get treble out of these things by adding whizzer cones in the middle Mm -hmm. and trying to get bass out of them by putting them in some sort of bass horn uh, system. And they're doing their utmost to try and turn something which is extremely good at mid-range into something which is full range. And it's tough to do. And I admire them for going that far. And I guess that if they're happy with what they hear, then all well and good because i can understand that that mid-range is is quite magical Mm. but then if you want to go to the other extreme you say okay what i'll do is i'll take that magical mid-range and i'll put a treble unit and a bass unit to handle the extremes so then you end up with a three-way and that's a good way of doing things as well but then you have the problem you've got two crossovers to deal with and everything that you do to the treble crossover affects the way the bass sounds because of the balance. You're really mm. looking in any design of any piece of equipment, you're looking at a balance between the fundamental tones and the harmonics. And if you get the fundamentals and the harmonics balanced correctly, then things sound lifelike and uh, exciting. If you don't get it right, then things sound artificial and unexciting and boring. So everything you do in a treble crossover affects the bass. Everything you do in a bass crossover affects the treble or your perception of it, I should Mm. say. So it's a difficult balancing act. So then you come back to, well, perhaps the best thing to do is to have something that handles the bass in mid-range and something that handles the treble. And that, of course, is your two-way. And, yeah, I've had a lot of fun designing really, really good two-way speakers. So uh, there you have it. But there's, there's no, no right. There's, there's no, no wrong, ideal solution. There's no I guess ideal it's, solution. Right. No. It's just about unless it's an electrostatic. <laughs> okay, we'll go there. A big electrostatic. Right. <laughs> um, number nine is something that I I see more and more actually creeping into the headphone world, where people talk about you know using EQ to take away a nasty in a headphone or make it more pleasurable, but we also have to remind ourselves you can't EQ one headphone to sound like another, and therefore it follows that you can't EQ one speaker system to sound like another, right? Now, very often EQ nowadays is done in DSP, and your your myth number nine that needs debunking reads, DSP can solve all response problems. Yeah, but this comes mainly through loudspeakers but i would actually apply it to every single piece of apparatus that there is out there Mm. Um, but let's deal with it in in loudspeakers because this is where it started to crop up in active loudspeakers and as you say headphones and the idea in active loudspeakers is that you can correct all the problems that you have um, because you've got dsp 
that you can play with. Um, and you can't because huh. when you're using DSP to try and solve problems, what problems are you trying to solve? And they're generally, when you talk to the engineers who are trying to do this, it's always response problems. And you say, but you're just dealing with the response measured by a microphone in a nanocoat chamber at one kilohertz. You're not dealing with um, and at one measured at one meter. You're not dealing with something which is in a broad range, which is trying to handle a musical waveform, which is a totally non-linear thing. Um, doesn't although it consists of a bunch of sine waves, doesn't look like a bunch of sine waves, doesn't behave like a bunch of sine waves. Mm. And in other words, it has transients and all sorts of other time-related functions. Um, and you're not dealing with, first and foremost, you're not dealing with the mechanical issues because all loudspeakers have mechanical issues which have to be solved before you even begin to start dealing with the frequency response and distortion and so on. So how are you going to deal with that with DSP? Frankly, you can't because DSP is an afterthought. It's something that comes after everything else has happened and you cannot correct an error which has already happened. Mm. So what's the use of DSP? The use of DSP is is trying to make a transparent filter system, let's say a crossover system in a loudspeaker, mm-hmm. where you've made everything mechanical as good as you possibly can before you even start on on doing your dsp and Mm. then you keep your dsp as simple as possible and you try and emulate if you can what you can do with passive crossovers not always easy but many people i know and including myself use dsp for room compensation software so like dirac or lingdorf or yeah I mean, yeah. I, I find and that, that and very potent. Yeah, it never used to be. It used to be bloody awful. But, <laughs> yes, nowadays, but nowadays, these people have worked hard on these systems. And providing you use them to control the main deficiencies of the room, yeah, they work. But you'll find that they're not... The, the reason that they work is because the, the people who are manipulating the software, and I guess you've done enough of it to be an expert yourself um usually a pie i would say fairly gentle corrections right you're not trying to you're not trying to produce a ruler flat frequency response are you no that because i've i've actually tried that here and it sounds horrible it sounds horrible exactly so when you do it gently Mm. just to try and solve the major problems like everybody has a room which has a dip and a peak Mm -hmm. somewhere in the in the base region yep and if you use it to control that then fine but if you try and flatten out the response up to 20 kilohertz, it usually sounds pretty dreadful. Yeah, I did it as a, an academic exercise one afternoon using Room EQ Wizard and just tweaking the shit out of a parametric EQ on an amplifier so that it, w- it would appear flat at a microphone at the listening position. And it was horrible. It sounded the worst I've ever heard in this room. It was awful. Yeah. But I can definitely see why you would call DSP a Band-Aid or an after-the-fact or an afterthought. Because, I mean, I have a, an acoustically treated room here, mostly acoustically treated. It's not 20-20, but it's, yeah, whatever. But it's certainly, yeah, it's, it's nicely treated at, say, between 300 hertz and a few K. And 
no DSP can do what that passive room treatment does, in my experience. Like the DSP is the the icing on that cake rather than the cake itself. Yeah, because what you're hearing from the room comes milliseconds, sometimes 10 or 20 milliseconds after the initial music signal. Mm. So no DSP in the world knows what is happening. It can't know what is happening. It's it's not time-related. It can only deal with what is being measured, which tends to be instantaneous. Mm. But, I mean, it's pretty good. I use it in here because I, I don't have enough space or enough, I guess, aesthetic willpower to accommodate the amount of mass that I would need to absorb the low frequencies that I need to absorb. I'm not doing it. I think it looks ugly. No way. So that's where, for me, to say it like 35 hertz, room correction software can be very useful because it solves an aesthetic problem, if you like. You know, it allows me, it frees me up from having to have these big bass traps all along one wall, which I have tried and I hated it because it looked horrible. So I, I think it has, it. you know, they are complementary, but I think the fundamentals of, I think, good room design, acoustically speaking, is passive treatment first and then DSP on top. And I'm pretty sure I would guess it's the same in the speaker design world. Yeah, it's absolutely the same. It's, it, it's, I would say it's even worse in the speaker design world because right. I get engineers coming to me from university who have been steeped in this DSP can solve any problem. Uh, and I have to sit them down and say, okay, try, try correcting these speakers so that they sound good you know? <laughs> um, and, and take them through the process of, of what's involved in speaker design. And yeah, DSP never, ever can solve the problems. Um, it can enhance things in a way that are likable. So, mm. you know, obviously in a smart speaker, um, you can um, boost bass, if you've got a if you've got a speaker which has got some sort of analyzing, which most have these days, you can ask them to analyze their environment, and they will uh, produce what they think is the correct sound for for the environment the speaker's mm. put in. You know, it's very useful. But then, yeah. the, but those systems are not trying to make a speaker from scratch. They're right. being used as a as a bolt-on afterthought in the same way that your Dirac and Lingdorf systems are. But I'll tell you one thing, mm. I don't use them at all. What I do is I rely on the filter in my brain. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty bold move, Peter. But that, it, I mean, is just... a, it is a bold move, and I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you I'll tell you how this came <laughs> how mm. this came about. I realized when I was making my tape recordings as a teenager that when I took my tape recorder from one room to another, things sounded completely different. And what's worse, they sounded completely different in mono more than in stereo. In stereo, they didn't sound so different. In mono, they sounded absolutely incredibly different. Wow. And I then started, you know, I went to a party and uh, a cocktail party, so people were talking, not a loud music party, Hmm. and stuck my finger in one ear and it's very difficult to discern between different conversations going on in a room if you're listening with one ear. But if you listen with two ears, you can distinguish between different conversations and focus on one conversation rather than another. Mm. So I started to do a lot of work into this discrimination effect that your brain has. And I realized that when your brain is constantly analyzing 
the environment in which you are in and making immediate adjustments. And I mean, they are instantaneous adjustments Mm -hmm. based on the acoustic that um, it's faced with. So Mm -hmm. you could go and talk to somebody in your living room or in your listening room, which is fully acoustically treated, and keep on talking to that person and go into your kitchen, which I suspect is highly reverberant in comparison. (laughs) And though that person will sound the same, their voice timbre does not change. But if you do that with one ear plugged, or if you do it with a mono tape recorder, you will hear a dramatic change. Yes, if you if you record it with a microphone system, it's yeah. it's unbelievably how unbelievably how, different. Yeah. But yes. that's not how we perceive things. No, because the brain does so, its own filtering to yeah. a degree, right? But yeah, but you, but you couldn't say put a hi-fi system inside Salisbury Cathedral and expect your brain to filter filter out all the reverb and the echo actually that the cathedral produces. Yeah, but luckily we're not faced with that. Luckily we're faced <laughs> with living rooms, which in many cases are similar i mean yes i've put speakers into rooms where there were no soft furnishings at all and obviously they sounded horrible Mm -hmm. Uh, but generally most people have soft furnishings carpets um, curtains sofas whatever in their Mm. listening room so they all tend to be what i would call reasonable and your brain can cope with that now what you can't deal with is the low frequency stuff Right, yes. So that's where your DRAC comes in, except that what I do is I move the speakers around in a room until I get the bass response I want. Well, yes, I mean... Now, not everybody can do that, which is okay, then that's where DRAC comes in. But that's what I would do. You know, If somebody says, install me a pair of speakers, I will go into the room and I will try the speakers in different places and then end, end up with the best sound. And if they have to move the furniture around to suit the speakers, then I would advise them to do that. Yeah, I think most most audio people can probably do that, but I don't. I still don't. I mean, maybe you're saying saying things to the contrary, Peter, but I still don't think you can get rid of all of the the base problems that are mathematically baked into the dimensions of the room just by moving the speakers. Can you? Can you, uh, get- you can't get rid of all of them, but no. but you can ameliorate them to the point where your brain can cope with the rest. I guess near field listening would probably be the best way to deal with not that. Not necessarily. No? Not necessarily. No. Okay. Um, then- I mean, I've done it in various listening rooms, and it's a matter of finding the best position for the speakers. Right. Okay. And it's not difficult to do. I mean, you just, you know, like we say in our instruction books, if you've not got enough bass, move the speakers closer to the rear wall. Mm. If you've got too much bass, move them further away. If you're getting awful bass altogether, then put them on the long wall instead of the short wall. Right. And that that's about it. That's all you have to do, really. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to number 10, because now we're into <laughs> measurement <laughs> territory. I knew you'd drag us there eventually, Peter. Um, you've written frequency response and other specifications indicate how equipment sounds. And you're saying this is a myth. It is a myth, yes, yes. All of it is a myth. Hmm. Uh, and again, I learned this, you know, fairly early on when I got involved in reviewing, um, and I was being asked to to measure stuff for hi-fi magazines, and also when when I got into design, um, obviously because uh, 
you quickly find out that what you're measuring and what you're hearing are two completely different things. Mm. Um, let's take, and I think we've touched on this before, but let's just, for the benefit of those listeners who don't know, luckily, because of COVID, I had the opportunity to design the Mission 770 over two and a half years. Mm-hmm. During that two and a half years, I built 174 prototypes. <laughs> all of those Bunkers. prototypes, all of those prototypes had nearly enough a flat response. Mm-hmm. They all sounded completely different. So that deals with frequency response, if you mm-hmm. like. Now, other measurements, we've already talked about distortion. What distortions matter it's the non-harmonic ones trying to measure non-harmonic distortions is really difficult with the measuring methods that we have trying to deal trying to measure transient distortions is extremely difficult given the measuring systems that we have Hmm. but music consists of transients decays and silences and unless you realize that you you're onto a loser and we just can't measure those. I'm sorry, but mm. it, you know we're talking about a time domain which stretches from a fraction of a millisecond out to several milliseconds. You cannot, with the best will in the world, measure what is going on in any reliable way. You can hint at it. I mean, you can do uh, what is called a waterfall display of the, fre- of the cumulative dis- mm-hmm. spectral display, where you look at slices of frequency response through time. But then you're only doing it with the microphone in one position. Now, your ears are doing it because you're moving your head, you're moving your body, you're hearing reflections off walls, floors, ceilings. Uh, those reflections delayed f- from the direct sound of the speaker. The direct sound of the speaker gives you detail, it gives you directional clues, um, but it doesn't tell you the timbre. The timbre comes from the the reflections off the wall off the mm-hmm. off the walls and floor and the ceiling and if those are wrong then in other words if the speaker has a skewed frequency response off axis if it's 30 degree off axis response is different in character to its direct response you'll hear it as a coloration mm. all those things are going on really 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 difficult to measure but some of those things things must be useful to you to see. They're for useful example. as a designer. They're useful, right? Um, and if you like, they're useful. I'm a speaker designer, so I often look at speaker designs and think, "Hmm, yes, I can see why the reviewer said that," because there's an indication uh, in the in in the results which I know equates to what when I do it to how things sound. Mm. Yeah. But I think to for the layman to say, oh, this speaker has got a response from 45 hertz to 20 kilohertz, and this speaker has got a response from 38 hertz to 20 kilohertz, so the one that goes down to 38 hertz must be better. Mm. It's not. <laughs> it's not the difference between 38 and 45 hertz is, yeah, it's one note on the bass guitar or one note on the piano, you might just hear it, but so much depends on the room down there that, yeah. And then it depends on the way it was measured. So, hmm. But it seems to me that the the headphone world, I know this is not the world that you necessarily operate in, but the headphone world has been at least partially captured by an obsession with frequency response because pretty much every YouTube video 
that I watch features a frequency response measurement of a, of a headphone or an earphone. But one I watched recently was fascinating because he, the, the, uh, the host of the show had measured A, B, and C. And they both, or sorry, all three of them roughly followed the Harman target curve or a target curve, right? Mm. And he, the presenter was saying, well, look, A is good. It sounds great. B is good. It sounds great. But C sounds horrible, even though its frequency response generally corresponds with the other two and therefore our target curve. So ergo, the target curve is not an indicator of sound quality, right? That's, no. that's what I took away from his video. Absolutely right. And it comes back. It comes back to the fact that you're listening to music. You're not listening to you're not listening to a steady state waveform. Mm. Right. But this is. I mean, this is something you've obviously sort of learnt over many decades of doing this. It's not just something you've picked up in the last six months. <laughs> no. No. So I mean, as a as a des whether you're designing speakers, headphones, or amplifiers, or whatever, um, your your target ought to be a set of measurements which correlate with what you're hearing mm. and understanding how those measurements can help you design something better. In, in, in my case, you know, I build a prototype, it measures great, I sit down and listen to it, it sounds horrible. So I then go back and, and start doing more measurements to see if I can pick up where the problem is. Mm. Um, having done it for... 45 years i've now got a good idea of you know where the problems lie but even so i like to find a measurement which gives me some idea of of where the problems are in order that when i correct those problems i can see the effect that the measurement gives me mm. but that's a design tool mm. it's not a measure of goodness in the end i might end up designing a speaker which doesn't have a flat frequency response but which sounds as though it does, right. and that matters far more. That's it's difficult, difficult to explain, but it, it, I know. I think you know. You have to take into account the the fact that you're measuring something with a moving with a sine with a series of sine waves, if you mm. like, with a sweep of sine waves, rather than when you're listening, you're listening to a very complex signal. Um, which has which has got starts and stops and silences and bangs and crashes and you know all I mean, the other stuff that's going on in the time domain. <laughs> For someone as as layman esque as me, I can understand what you're telling me, but I think for for many people this would be a very bitter pill to swallow, especially those who are who do think that measurements can predict the the sound quality or the enjoyment factor. Of a loudspeaker or any other piece of gear for that matter but i'm generally talking loudspeakers yeah which brings us on to number 11 really it does um, everything we hear is measurable and everything we measure is audible which i think is one that you put in and uh yeah again i mean it you know we've touched on that but it is tough to measure i find it extremely difficult to measure the flaws in my designs Mm. But I have to try, and I and I go on finding new measurement methods um, that try and correlate with with what I'm hearing. It's very very difficult. So you're talking um, about audible flaws, right? The things yeah. that you hear, right? Yeah. Okay. And I talk, you know, at IAG we have an extremely talented um, 
electronics designer who designs the the quad and audio lab stuff hmm. and i he's of the same opinion uh in his side of the things that it's very he can spot when things are going badly wrong hmm. but trying to find something which is eluding him on the subjective front you know why does this phono stage sound better than or worse than the phono stage I designed for that amplifier, hmm. he finds that very difficult to quantify. Right. But it, but he again is doing what I'm doing, and he's researching, 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 because it's the only way to progress. If you're going to progress in your chosen profession, you have to find quantitative ways of figuring out how you can design something better. But didn't you do the? Um, you mentioned the the mission crossover. Didn't you do all of that pretty much by ear? No, no, no. I, I did it. I did it by ear, backed up by trying to figure out in measurement what was going on. So you you measured to a certain point and then did it by ear, or am I? Well, like... you start with a prototype, which mm. you've used your measurements of everything in order to construct your first crossover, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and to choose the drive units you want to use and to to construct the cabinet that you want to use. Uh, and then it sounds horrible. So you have to say, okay, so where have I gone wrong? Uh, and then you use the measurement to try try and highlight where you've gone wrong. And you say, okay, if I fix that, then will it sound better? And you fix it, and it either sounds better or it doesn't. If it doesn't, you say, well, I've I haven't measured it yet. So you know, can I fix it by listening alone? Sometimes you can fix it by listening alone. And then you go back and for oh, that measurement has changed. So that correlates with what I was hearing. Do you see so what that, I mean? Yeah, I do. But then aren't you just, uh, but aren't you therefore saying that everything that you hear is measurable? No, no. I'm saying that, that I am trying to find a hint of something that's measurable ah, okay. that I can hear. I can hear it quite easily. I'm just trying to find out where it is. Okay. So it's like needle in a haystack situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and and the what I the reason I said that I designed the mission seven seventy by ear is because it was all listening led. The measurements are just there to help me uh, correct what I'm hearing, right. the faults that I'm hearing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Rather than the other way around, rather than saying gotcha. this measures perfectly, therefore it must sound right. perfect. And I do meet designers who say that, you know, mm. particularly amplifier designers, which say this must be the perfect amplifier because <laughs> the, the distortion is zero. Right. Uh, and I go, but when you put it on the parallel speakers, it goes into oscillation and sounds horrible. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's we'll tackle the end one, which is quite an odd one, but I think it's an important one because it, it relates to stereo depth. So when we're listening to a pair of loudspeakers, we kind of get the illusion, not just between the loudspeakers, the stereophony, but also the sort of what we might call soundstage depth. Is it real? Is it real, Peter? I don't know. Right. Uh, not just speakers, amplifiers, okay, sources, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to and to understand this, we must go back to the studio. So I will see reviews um, of equipment where they go, this singer sounded as though they were standing three feet behind the speakers. Mm -hmm. 
and sounded palpably real. And I go, that's interesting because that singer was recorded in mono and pan-potted into position. By pan-potting, it's where in the studio they use left and right adjustments of volume to make sure that the, the vocal is absolutely central. Mm. Um, so how can they be three feet behind the speakers? Because <laughs> they should be absolutely directly between the speakers. And sure enough, if you go into the studio and listen on their studio monitors, that voice is absolutely in the plane of the speakers directly in front of you. Mm. So <clears throat> what is this depth? Where does it come from? Well, I think one of the things that we should talk about, because it's another thing which I see discussed a huge amount on forums, is what is called the BBC dip. Mm -hmm. Now, the BBC dip, so-called, was brought in by BBC engineers when they were designing speakers, because if you have a pair of monitor speakers in front of you, everything sounds too close. In other words, you're not hearing what the person in the living room would necessarily be hearing, because mm -hmm. the speakers are much closer to you than they than they, they would be to say somebody in an average size listening room. So the BBC engineers said, okay, if everything sounds too close, if we put in a one to two B broad dip in the presence region, which is between one and three kilohertz, mm -hmm. it will have the subjective effect of moving images back behind the speakers. They will sound slightly more distant. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. And that became infamous infamous in a number of speakers, including the LS35A, the Spender BC1, um, the Harbith HL1s, and so on. Mm. These are all BBC engineer-led designs. And they also cropped up in a lot of other speakers, um, which were being designed purely subjectively, as speakers were. So if you look at a lot of the lot of the work that Gilbert Briggs did um, on his freestanding speakers rather than his corner speakers, um, they tended to have sort of shallow dips in in that region. Mm. Uh, it's it makes things sound a little bit more real. So if you compare studio monitors, well, if you take studio monitors and put them in a hi-fi system, they sound very in your face and way mm. too bright. Hmm. Um, so generally, we tend to engineer systems which have this, it's not artificial depth, but it's perhaps artificial perspective. It pushes things into a plane behind the speakers so that it sounds more real. So it's a bit of a dip you put in there. Yeah. And, and very often it's, yeah, if you don't do it deliberately. Very often hmm. you do it as <laughs> part of the design almost subconsciously. Mm. Uh, and you generally some speakers it doesn't work with small speakers it doesn't work with um, mm. funnily enough small speakers sound better when when sometimes better when they're flat um, it tends to work when you're dealing with you know medium-sized stand mount speakers um, and, uh, and medium-sized floor standers when you get to really big speakers then uh, they somehow 
they somehow manage to fill a room with sound in a way that you don't need to do it. Right, okay. We're dealing with subjective effects, psychoacoustic effects, which are, again are difficult to quant- to quantify and certainly difficult to quantify. So I think you might have just explained inadvertently, Peter, why people tend to, well, why audiophile people or hi-fi people tend not to enjoy the, the studio monitors made by Genelec or Neumann or, I don't know, Head Audio, Adam Audio, just, yeah, the powered monitors that are very common in the production space. Um, that yeah, mon- people- mon- monitors are there to let the recording engineer know everything that's going on. They're, mm. they're incredibly revealing and very, very in your face. Mm. Um, Doesn't that therefore imply that every high, well, not every hi-fi speaker, but many, many hi-fi speakers are further away from being close to the source. (laughs) Well, not I'm not saying this is a criticism. I'm just saying that this is one way of looking at it. It's a matter of presentation, I think. Mm. There's there's no reason why you can't make hi-fi speakers, uh, hi-fi equipment in general, which is very transparent in the amount of detail it reveals Mm. and, and the way that the musicians are... Um, perform and are presented to you. Mm. So like I said, if you get the balance between the fundamentals and the harmonics right, and you get the time, the timings right, the time domain stuff right, then everything sounds incredibly real, incredibly natural and very involving musically. Mm. Um, and that's that's wonderful. But the issue I have is those people who judge hi-fi equipment by these spatial artifacts and go on and on about how uh, you know, the, the such and such an instrument appeared in this position, and therefore that that's correct because mm. that's not the way most things are recorded. Most things are recorded with microphones shoved up their asses, um, and engineers in recording studios go to significant, put a huge amount of work into making sure the phase relationships between their close and distant microphones are correct Mm. so that the images are cohesive. Yes, but those images are not captured in the real way that a lot of hi-fi people talk about them being presented. Okay, that's interesting. Wow, I I feel like I've, I've gone to school again. Peter, talking to you, I, I, I seriously, I, I find it actually fascinating because you plug a lot of holes that I've had in my knowledge, you know, for for a long time, and I'm sure a lot of the audience listening to this will feel the same way that you've, you know, you've really helped them better understand certain aspects and also, yeah, debunk some myths along the way. I think it's been very instructive, even if even if um, some people don't agree with you. I still think it's it's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I don't mind. I, I, I've no problem with people not agreeing with me. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's only one person's opinion. Mm-hmm. I just have to say that you know, I've I've come up with my opinions with forty five years of experience exactly. in this industry, yes, and is. I know that I'm not always right. But I think I'm getting closer to the truth than a lot of the stuff that I hear and read and see. Um, out there, either on, either in magazines or from people who come up to me at shows or, or on social media. Mm. Well, Peter Como, thank you very much for your time. Once again, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening. 